your Bible and open it to the book of Judges in the Old Testament, chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, I want to thank Tim for uh, bringing the first message of this book last Sunday. He provided the introduction to the book, which in the the case of the book of Judges covers the first couple of chapters. And so uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I certainly would encourage you to go to the website or if you have the podcast that you download that and take some time to listen to that. Uh, because, number one, it's a wide swath of text, uh, but even more, it lays the foundation for the rest of the book. Tim did a great job, and so I highly recommend that if you have some time this week, carve out 45 minutes or so and listen to that message. Tim gave the introduction to the book, which comprises really the first couple of chapters. The book of Judges is really can outline it into three parts or three sections. The first uh, two chapters or so is the introduction, Uh, Chapters 17 to 21, the end of the book, is an epilogue, kind of explains what happens after the judges and really goes to point out the the real depravity that was existing in Israel at that time. But the bulk of the book is the middle section, chapter 3, verse 7 to the end of chapter 16. And that section, the main section, the bulk of the book, really is the story of about six judges, six major judges, not major because they were better than other judges, but major because we have more information about them, more stories about them as compared to the six minor judges who are also mentioned in this book. But that section really relates the stories around their ministry as judges in Israel over a period of about uh, 300 or so years. Because Tim dealt with the introduction last week, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, Uh, Today we're going to enter into that main section beginning in chapter 3, verse 7, and looking at the story involving the first major judge, the judge named Othniel. So if you have your Bible open to Judges chapter 3, let's look at verses 7 through 11, which is that introductory judge, the first of the judges. Judges 3, verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim. So the land had rest forty years. So the story of Othniel is brief, but it is paradigmatic. That is, it teaches us or provides for us the paradigm or the pattern of salvation that we see throughout the book of Judges. The writer had summarized that for us back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, gave us sort of a a generic uh, summary of what that uh, pattern of salvation looks like. It really becomes the template for telling the story uh, stories of the Judges. But as we see here in verses 7 through 11, the story of Othniel, we also see that this passage foreshadows the gospel message that is fully revealed in the New Testament, but that spans the entire biblical narrative From beginning to end. In this account, verses 7 through 11, we see four movements uh, 
that parallel four essential aspects of the gospel. And I want to walk through those four movements this morning in their historical context and then draw out their parallels to the gospel. So let's begin with the first movement, the place where the text begins in verse 7, with Israel's sin. Israel's sin. The narrative begins with a note about Israel's sin in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel did evil. Israel acted wickedly. Israel sinned against the Lord. Now, how did the people of Israel sin against the Lord? How did they do evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, the writer mentions two ways there in verse 7. He says, first of all, that they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the the Lord their God. Now, the word forgot doesn't suggest that Israel developed a spiritual amnesia or that they had acted ignorantly or had a momentary lapse in judgment. That word forget points to a willful rebellion, an intentional abandonment of the Lord, a purposeful disregard of the Lord. In the literary template, back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that the writer of Judges gave, sort of, again, the summary for how these stories would work, the pattern of salvation, he used the word abandoned, that Israel abandoned the Lord. Other of your English translations will use the word forsook, the passive tense of forsake. And this idea here is that as they forgot the Lord, they really were abandoning the Lord. They were really forsaking the Lord. That word there, to forget, signifies Israel's willful contempt of the Lord and their purposeful departure from the Lord. Apostasy is a word we used back in the sermon series on Jude and thinking about what it means to apostatize, what it means, what apostasy is. Apostasy is really a willful departure from the faith, a deliberate departure from the faith. And that's what's happening here in the Old Testament with Israel. There's nothing passive or innocuous about forgetting the Lord. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord by willfully disregarding him and turning away from him. Secondly, the second reason that he gives us here, how Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, really the, the, the logical expression of how they forgot the Lord is that they served the Baals and the Asherahs. They served the Baals and the Asherahs. So, so Baal here was the, the chief Canaanite deity. He was the storm god. He was the one who the Canaanites believed brought the rains upon the, the fields that made the crops to grow and provide abundant harvest. And so in an agricultural society that is dependent upon the rain, I think we can understand the attraction that Israel saw in worshiping a deity who would bring the rains for them. And so the worship of Baal was a great temptation for the Israelites as we see throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. Asherah was Baal's consort. She was a fertility goddess. She's the one who who blessed the fields with bounty, with fertility. She's the one who blessed uh, the animals with uh, productivity so that they would produce lots of animals. She even would provide, they thought that she would give fertility to uh, the women to be able to, to, to conceive and bear children. And so again, in an agricultural society, we see the temptation of Israel turning to that particular goddess. Well, this is the main reason, the Baals and the Asherahs are the main reason why God commanded the Israelites to put to death all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You might remember that last year, about this time we were going through the book of Joshua, and and Joshua, the command that the Lord gave to Joshua, put to death all the Canaanites, put to death all the peoples of the land. And it sounds so harsh. It sounds very unlike 
God, if we think of God as a God of love, it sounds so unlike God to command the complete eradication of a people. But it wasn't genocide. It wasn't ethnic cleansing. This is theological, not racial or ethnic. The reason to remove all the Canaanites is because if the people of the Canaanites remained in the land, they were going to continue worshiping their gods. And by the very virtue of the fact that they were in the land side by side with the Israelites, the Israelites would also be tempted to worship those very gods. And that is exactly what happens. It was exactly as, God, as, as the Lord promised Israel, that if they allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land, the Canaanites would be a snare to the Israelites. And how would they be a snare? By enticing the Israelites to forget the Lord and worship the Canaanite gods instead. The Israelites forgot the Lord, not merely by neglecting Him or abandoning Him, but by also at the same time turning to other gods. It says in verse 7 that Israel served the Baals and the Asherah. They dutifully honored them. They worshipped them. They performed religious rites and duties in the names of these Canaanite deities instead of worshipping alone the Lord their God. Now, why was this wrong? Well, again, we can answer that question in two ways. First, the more immediate explanation is that Israel broke God's law that forbid the worship of other gods. And by breaking God's law, Israel violated the very covenant that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. Remember that back in Exodus chapter 20. God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And in that covenant, God gave Israel His law that would spell out how they were to live in this relationship together. How would they live with God as their God and they being His people? What did that look like? God gave them a law so they would know how they were to live, how they were to live. And at the very heart of that law was God's calling upon Israel to live as a holy and righteous people. When Adam read from 1 Peter chapter 1 earlier today about being a holy people, Peter was quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting from Leviticus. And God's call to his people to be a holy and righteous people, to walk according to God's righteousness, to live according to God's righteousness. As God is a righteous God, He required His people to also be a righteous people. Well, by forgetting the Lord and serving the Baals and Asheroth, Israel broke God's law and they violated His covenant. This was evil in the sight of the Lord. But the more ultimate reason why Israel's deeds could be called evil is because Israel violated God's very righteousness. Even if God had never given Israel a law, God is still righteous. And He still expects His people to be righteous as He is righteous, to be holy as He is holy. God is righteous. God is holy. And all who would relate to Him must also be righteous and holy. But Israel's failure to acknowledge God's supremacy and to submit to God's righteousness And Israel's embrace of other gods than the only true God was an act of unrighteousness. They departed from God's very righteousness. They departed from God's holy character and His standards of righteousness. Only a righteous people can live in relationship with the righteous God. So their unrighteousness was evil in the sight of the truly righteous Lord. Well, verse 7 highlights a main theme of Scripture, which is that sin brings enmity between God and people. Sin brings hostility. Sin brings enmity, alienation between God and people. 
Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That by our sin we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of His righteousness. We fall short of His holiness. And this is universally true for all people. This is not just a situation that applies to the Israelites only. This applies for all people. No one is immune. Paul again, quoting from various texts in the Old Testament, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Israel's main problem, and our main problem, is sin. Sin is every person's basic problem. What was true for Israel is true for every person. We all do evil in the sight of the Lord. We could take out the phrase, the people of Israel in verse 7, and put our name in there, and it would be just as true. We forget the Lord. We, like Israel, serve things other than the Lord our God. Now, if you're not a Christian, that might sound like startling news to you. You might think that you're spiritually fine, that you're in a good place with God, But the Bible would tell us that you're not. That you are a sinner and your sin has put you at odds with God. And that's important to understand. It's harsh to hear, but it's important to understand because we can only hear the good news of the gospel when we first realize our need for it. And we we see our need for the gospel when we recognize that we are sinful people at enmity with God. And brothers and sisters, we too need to be mindful of our sinfulness Despite God's gracious work of salvation in our lives, we need to remember what we once were, that we were once sinners, that we were children of wrath and sons of disobedience, that we were following along the course of this world. We were, as Titus says in, or as Paul says in Titus 3.3, 3, that we were, are, are we, we, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And when we remember what we once were, we become more grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. Not only, ought we, do we, not only should we become more devoted to the Lord, we should be more mindful to, to love Him and to, to serve Him and to worship Him alone. But we are also strengthened to submit to Him and be faithful to Him. Because of what God has done for us, it should make it easy for us to bow our knee to Him as Lord and say, I will submit myself to you. I will obey you. I will serve you alone. I will not forget you and serve other things. But recognizing what we once were also reminds us of the battles that we continue to face in the Christian life. John reminds us in 1 John 1.8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Friends, even though we are saved, even though we've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we still struggle with the reality of sin in our daily lives. We know from Scripture that we have a spiritual enemy that is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We live in a sin-sick world that flaunts its sinfulness and invites us to join in. We know that sin is crouching at the door and that its desire is to rule over us. So though the power of sin is broken in our lives, we are still susceptible to sin and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so in Israel's sinfulness is a reminder for new covenant people 
to walk by the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That we are to walk by the Spirit so that we do not do evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, though we strive to walk in perfect faithfulness, that we want to live righteously before a righteous God, we understand that we will still, unfortunately at times, like Israel, look like them. And in those times, God calls us to confess our sins and to avail ourselves of his remedy for sin, the precious blood of Christ. This is why Adam, many Sundays, will end the call to worship cause us to remember that we are entering into a time of worship, that we're coming before a holy God. And that one of the things we must be mindful of the fact is that we are indeed still struck by sin. We've committed sins during the week, and it's important to confess our sins before the Lord so that we can avail ourselves of the very remedy He's provided for us. And that we can live in the freedom to, to worship Him as His children, not encumbered by the sins that have entangled us in the previous week. So we see Israel's sin and its illustration of our own sinfulness. Secondly, let's consider God's judgment in verse 8. God's judgment. Notice in verse 8 that Israel's sin incited the Lord to anger because of his righteousness. And because he demanded Israel's obedience to the law, God responded to their sin with judgment. How did God judge his people? Well, in verse 8, second part of verse 8, we see that he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. And Cushan Rishathaim is identified as the king of Mesopotamia, that land we would consider today modern-day Iraq. I know we're some years removed now from that war, but if you remember back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, Iraq on the news, right? The map of Iraq. That's ancient Mesopotamia. The land, it literally means the land between the rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Now, Cushan was king in one part of that area, northern Mesopotamia, that land between the Tigris and Euphrates River. The name Rishathaim is probably an epithet that the Israelites gave to him. It means double wickedness. It's hard to imagine that Cushan would take on that epithet for himself. I'm Cushan the doubly wicked, right? It's hard to conceive that his own people would apply that title to him. And so it seems that this is a, a, an Israelite epithet, an Israelite name for him. Actually, the name Mesopotamia in Hebrew is the name Aram Naharayim. So it's Cushan Rishathayim of Aram Naharayim. It's kind of a little pun, right? They're making a little pun on his name, but they're saying that he is the man of double wickedness. He's Cushan the doubly wicked. But it indicates to them and to us the kind of evil man that this guy was. He was probably what we would associate as being a sort of a modern-day dictator, a man who was not just simply evil, but he was doubly evil, doubly wicked, supremely wicked. And yet, Cushan Rishathayim is the Lord's human agent of applying his judgment to his people. Again, because of Israel's evil, the Lord sold them into the hands of one who is even more wicked than they were, who is doubly wicked, who is twice as wicked, as a matter of fact. The word sold in verse 8 is an economic term that signifies that God had transferred ownership of his people to Cushan. That he is relinquishing all rights and responsibilities for his people. He has put them, I love the language there, he put them in the hand of Cushan Rishathayim. In other words, God's response here is something like him disowning them. Those of you I know who are entrepreneurs who have your own businesses or maybe have owned a business in the past that, that you maybe have, have sold businesses before. You're completely stepping away or even think about home ownership, right? When you sell a home, you're completely divorcing yourself from what you once owned. You're no longer associated with it 
in any way. And that language here is speaking here of, of, of a kind of, 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 of disowning of Israel. Well, now in the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, it says that Israel served him. And do you see the irony there with the word served? Because in verse 7, Israel served the Baals and the Asherahs by, will, by willingly worshipping them. But now in verse 8, they no longer serve the Baals and the Asherahs, but they serve Cushan unwillingly, suffering the hardness and the severity of his rule over them. And they are now doing his bidding. Well, this judgment we see in verse 8 as well is no short venture. Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. And so for eight long years, as they were under the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, they weren't just simply suffering at the hands of this evil dictator. They were suffering from the hand of the Lord. The hand of God's judgment was upon them. But why did God respond to Israel in this way? Why did he respond to their sin in this way? And again, I think Scripture gives us two answers. Again, the more immediate answer here is that this is what God promised them. This is what God had told them much earlier in their history. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, God announced the promises of blessings and curses for his people. When Israel came into the land, again, he was telling them this before they entered the land, but if, when they came to the point where they entered into the land, if they were faithful to the Lord, if they kept his covenant, if they obeyed his law, he would bless them. But if they were unfaithful to the Lord, if they failed to keep his covenant, if they disobeyed his law, then he would curse them. So we ask the question, why is Israel suffering? Well, the author of Judges places Israel's sin in theological perspective here. God's judgment has come to them as the righteous response to their sin, just as he promised. Again, verse 8 highlights another theme of the scriptures. That God's response to sin is judgment. And judgment is not God being mad. God's judgment is not being vindictive. God's judgment is not punitive. God's judgment here is an expression of his righteousness. When God administers judgment, he does so because it is the right thing to do. It is the right response to sin. In other words, sin merits this kind of righteous response from God. If God did not deal with sin in this way, he would not be righteous. Again, God's judgment against Israel illustrates his judgment against all sin. God's judgment of Israel's, God's judgment against Israel here foreshadows the eternal judgment that God brings to all sinners. Again, judgment is not an isolated Incident. It is not confined just to this moment or to a few places here or there in the scriptures, but it is an eternal reality for all who do evil in the sight of the Lord. Temporary displays of God's judgment in the scriptures, as we see here in verse 8, illustrate the eternal display of God's judgment at the end of time. Why is God's judgment eternal? Because sin against an eternally holy and righteous God merits eternal punishment. The only way to rectify sin against the holy God is to punish the sinner eternally. And so again, if you come in this morning, you're not a Christian, it's important to realize that God's judgment awaits you. Again, that's a sobering reality, probably not something you've thought much about. You may think that you're fine now, 
But there is a day coming when you will die. And if you die in your sins, you will face God's eternal judgment. And the Bible describes that judgment as unbearable. It describes it as severe. It describes it as a flame that never goes out. As a, as a worm that never dies. Eternal torment forever and ever. What makes the reality of God's judgment even worse is that we don't know when that day will come. We don't know the day that we will die. Especially some of those, those of you who are young, right? You've got your whole life ahead of you. You've been told, you know, you're maybe 20 years old now, 15 years old. You're going to live to hopefully ripe old age is what we want for all of our kids. And yet we don't know what's going to happen to us when we leave this morning. None of us knows what will happen this week. We don't know what will happen next year, five years from now, or ten years from now. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. We may think that we will live a long life, but there are no guarantees. In fact, the only reason why you're even still alive now is God's mercy and God's patience. Because the scripture is very clear that we ought to die. The day that we sin, we ought to die. And yet God is merciful to allow us life. He's been extraordinarily patient and kind with us. Do not presume upon that patience and kindness. If you're a Christian, reminders about God's judgment, like we read here in verse 8, should prompt us to immediately praise the Lord. We should see what we have been saved from. He has removed his hand of judgment against us in Christ. We have no fear of that judgment that that the Scripture speaks about. And yet the God whose judgment is terrible and severe calls us never to lose the fear of the Lord. Calls us never to lose that that discipline, that directive to walk in His ways. We cannot and must not be cavalier about our walk with the Lord. We must ever be mindful not to do evil in the sight of the Lord, not to forget the Lord our God, not to serve things other than God. We must be mindful to fear the Lord, to walk in His ways. And that brings us then to the third movement, the first part of verse 9, Israel's distress. Israel's distress. We see that Israel's response in verse 9 is to cry out to the Lord. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the word cried out there indicates or signifies a cry of distress or a cry of pain. Much like a child who injures himself, right? Those of you who are parents and your child injures themselves and you hear that, that cry, that cry for help, your immediate response is to go and attend to them, right? It's a, it's a cry of distress, a cry of pain. It's also a cry seeking help, right? I've just fallen off my bike and skinned my knee really badly. I need some help. So that cry is not just simply expressing pain, but it's also asking for some kind of relief. This word is used to express Israel's groaning to the Lord just prior to the Exodus. Back in chapter two, uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we're reminded there that Israel, the Israelites were suffering. They were languishing under Pharaoh's harsh hand. He was oppressing them by making the various bricks and working on his building projects to the point that they, they, they could barely even live. And so it says, the scripture says that they cried out to the Lord. They were crying out, expressing their, their, their pain, their suffering, their oppression, and seeking his relief. And now here in verse 9, the Israelites are miserable. They are distressed at the oppression that's been brought on them by Cushan Rishathayim. But again, Cushan's oppression of Israel was really the means here by which God was bringing judgment upon his own people. 
Israel's suffering, again, was God's judgment for their sins. And yet, who do the Israelites turn to in the time of their misery? They don't turn to the Baals and Asherahs that they gladly served, but they turn to the Lord whom they had disregarded and forsaken. In the time of their distress, the Israelites called out to the Lord, to Yahweh, for relief from their suffering. And yet notice what their cry is not. There are many in the book of Judges, as we go through this and you read about this, there are many who would like to use the word repentance to refer to Israel's response here. But I don't think that that this is true repentance. I would argue just the opposite, that this is not repentance at all. Because Israel does not acknowledge its sinfulness. They don't acknowledge that they have forgotten the Lord. They don't acknowledge that they have served the Baals and the Asheroth. There's no contrition for what they have done. There's no sorrow for the evil that they've done in the sight of the Lord. Israel here is merely responding to their circumstances, not to their sins. I don't think that qualifies as true repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And if we think about not just this instance. We'll see this clearly as we go through the book of Judges, but see it throughout the Old Testament as well. That Israel's sin, Israel's quote-unquote repentance, was never a, a true repentance. It was always a worldly grief that ended up resulting in death. There is no repentance that leads to true salvation. What Israel seeks here is not restoration with the Lord. They're not looking to renew their covenant. They simply wanted relief from their suffering. And so they cry out to God for help. We can learn two important lessons from Israel's crying out to the Lord in this instance. First, we understand from their experience what the nature of sin is like, right? Sin offers temporary delight. There was some kind of joy in giving themselves over to sin, but it ended up really producing enduring misery. Oh, there were the festivals, there were the celebrations, there were the feasts in serving Baal and the Asherahs. But once those had been taken away, once God had brought his judgment, there was eight years of hardship and deep suffering and enduring misery. Their joy had turned to deep, deep misery. But second, we also learn here about the nature of God's judgment, that his judgment is heavy. It is severe. It is painful. We see in verse 9, Israel languishing under the weight of God's hand of judgment. Now, we would commend Israel here for directing their cry to the Lord, right? Because he is the only one who can save them. They don't give their, they don't ask for help from Baal or from Asherah. There's no help that can come from there. Help can only come from the Lord. And so when we also suffer, it is good and wise to turn to the Lord because He is the only one who can truly help us in our time of need. Because of God's promise in Deuteronomy that God would bless the people for their obedience but curse them for their disobedience, Israel should have used their suffering as an opportunity to examine themselves, to investigate why are we suffering here? Why are we in the midst of of this great turmoil, of this great misery? And that self-examination, I think, would have exposed their sin, right? Because remember what God said, if you disobey me, I will curse you. So you kind of work backwards. I'm being cursed. Hmm. 
It's because there's some kind of disobedience. We've disobeyed God's law. That would have concluded that they were suffering. They were, they were miserable because of their sin. They should then, in acknowledging that, have repented of their sin. For only in true repentance could they be restored to God. And so we also must understand that if we will truly be right, if we will ever truly be right with the Lord, we must too repent of our sins. True repentance is born of godly sorrow because our sins offend a holy and righteous God. And so if you are not a Christian, recognize that your sin has set you at enmity with God. See that, see what awaits you. See that what is going to be your destiny is nothing but fiery judgment. And when you recognize that, do what Israel did in this case, which was turn to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. But don't cry merely out of distress. Don't merely cry out because of misery. Don't cry out merely because you may suffer for eternity. But cry out to the Lord in repentance and brokenness over your sins. But it is your your sins that have kept you from fellowship with God. If you are a Christian, it is important to understand that whatever distress you may face in this life is not brought about by God's judgment. God has taken care of His judgment against you. Praise God for that. You have no need to fear the Lord's judgment. He has fully judged your sins in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Lord will never judge you again for your sins because those sins have already been paid. Your suffering is the result of living in a fallen world or because of the evil actions of others against you or perhaps because of persecution for your faith, but it is not the result of God's judgment for your sins. God has dealt with those already in the death of Jesus. The scripture is clear that we will suffer, and God's providential purposes for that suffering may not be clear, but they will be accomplished. God will use whatever suffering we endure for his glory and for his grace in your life. But regardless, whenever we suffer in this life, Whatever the source of it may be, what ought we to do? We should look to the Lord. We should cry out to Him. We should take comfort in Him and in the grace that He provides to us. And that brings us then to the final movement in this paradigmatic story, verses 9 to 11. That's God's salvation. God's salvation. We see in verses 9 to 11 that God saved His people. And He did this work of salvation by raising up a deliverer this man in verse 9 who's identified as Othniel. Now, we don't know much about Othniel. In fact, of all of the stories of the judges, this one is the shortest. There's very little that's given about his biography. We do know a few things about him. He was the son of Caleb's younger brother. You remember Caleb from earlier in the Old Testament story? He was one of the faithful spies. He and Joshua, when God had told Israel to go and spy out the promised land during their wilderness wandering, and he was the one that came back with a good report and said, look, there are giants in the land. There's all kinds of issues. But God is telling us to go take the land and let's go take it. But the other ten spies said, no, we're not going to do that because those giants, there's no way that we can win. And so Israelites listened to the majority. It's not always the best idea. And they chose not to enter into the promised land. So God cursed that generation. And every single one who came out of Egypt from 20 years old and over died in the wilderness, never experiencing the blessing of the promised land, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. That's this Caleb. We saw Caleb and Joshua back in chapter 14, 
and 15 when he said, I want my inheritance. Parcel out my land. Tell me which mountain is mine. And he went up at age 85 and he took his mountain. And he was able to experience the fullness and the blessing of that what God had promised for him and for his people there in his inheritance. Well, Caleb, Caleb's younger brother uh, is uh, Kenaz. And his son, Kenaz's son, is Othniel. So that makes Othniel uh, Caleb's nephew. He was also, interestingly enough, Caleb's son-in-law. Caleb had said that there was a city that he wanted to see taken and that whoever would take that city would have the right to marry his daughter. And so Othniel was the one who went and he took the city of Debir from the Canaanites, eradicated the people of that place, and took it as his inheritance and married Caleb's daughter, Aksa. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 15. So prior to this occurrence, we see that Caleb was already a valiant warrior. He was already one who seemed to be faithful to the Lord, seemed to have his heart set right upon the Lord, wanted to be, uh, to be faithful to, to the Lord and to his word. We should also note here that Caleb, or excuse, Othniel was from the tribe of Judah, that he was associated with that particular tribe. That will be important in a little bit later. That's all we really know about Othniel. But we do know what happens here in this situation in verse 9 because it says that Othniel saved Israel. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now the emphasis on, in verse 9 and 10 is on the salvation that Othniel brings to Israel. Notice in verse 9, he is called the deliverer of Israel. It also says that he saved Israel. Those words, deliver and save, come from the same Hebrew word, which means to deliver or to save or to rescue. So the emphasis here is on God's salvation of his people from this crisis. Now, how did Othniel save Israel? Well, he made war against Cushan Rishathaim, and he prevailed over him. He drove Cushan from Israel, sent him back to his kingdom in Mesopotamia. And in doing so, Othniel set free the Israelites from the misery that Cushan had imposed upon them. But if we read the text closely, we will understand that Othniel was really only the human agent of salvation. Because who was the one who was really saving Israel? It wasn't Othniel. It was the Lord. The Lord delivered Israel from Cushan's oppression. The Lord simply worked out this act of salvation through a human agent named Othniel. Notice in verse 9 that the Lord raised up Othniel as a deliverer. In verse 10, the Lord empowered Othniel with his spirit. Right? The Lord thrust his spirit upon Othniel. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, was upon him. In other words, this is what was necessary for him to accomplish this task. As great of a warrior as Othniel may have been, as clever a military mind as he might have been, as, as great of a strategy as he may have devised, the only way Othniel was able to bring the salvation was because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He could only accomplish this by the work of the Spirit. We also see that the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into Othniel's hand. It is the Lord who put Cushan into Othniel's hand. Again, I love the imagery there because earlier it says the Lord put Israel in Cushan's hand. And now the Lord is taking Israel from Cushan's hand and putting them in Othniel's hand. He's even putting Cushan into Othniel's hand to ensure that he will achieve the victory. Now the text gives us very little detail 
as to how the Lord gave Cushan into Othniel's hand, except to say that Othniel went to war against Cushan. But it's the Lord that gave Othniel success. Again, the credit for Othniel's success belongs to the Lord because as we see in verse 10, the Lord gave Cushan into Othniel's hand. Again, that language parallels verse 8 where the Lord sold Israel into Cushan's hand, right? At that time, he was relinquishing ownership. He was, he was washing his hands of the Israelites. He was, in a sense, divorcing them from being his people. But now he claims ownership once again by delivering them out of Cushan's hand and into the hand of Othniel, his appointed deliverer. Right? So they are no longer in Cushan's hand, but they are in Othniel's hand. And in both cases, God, the sovereign God, put his people in each one's hand. So the bottom line of all this, the point of emphasis to make here, is that it was the Lord who saved his people. He's the one who's responsible for their salvation. Othniel was just the agent. And so in seeing this, we see once again another main theme, the main theme, some people have summarized it as the main sentence of Scripture, the main verse of Scripture, the summary sentence. In Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord is the one who saves. The Lord saved his people. Yes, he used means. Yes, he used a flesh and blood person. Yes, he used the act of war. Yes, he used military strategy. But he used those means to accomplish his purpose, which was the salvation of his people. Now, what was the outcome? Verse 11 tells us that what did the salvation look like? Well, in verse 11, we see that the land had rest for 40 years. And that word rest conveys, once again, this sense of salvation, this sense of safety and security and peace. Israel was free from, from not just Cushan, but all foreign oppressors who would inflict suffering upon them. So Israel's salvation here in this passage is experienced in a very tangible way, right? They physically and temporally benefited from God's salvation. And we also know from this passage that the Lord brought this salvation to Israel solely by His grace. Right? Remember, the only thing that people have done is cried out for help. They've not repented of their sins. They've not asked to re-engage in the covenant. They didn't remember their covenant commitment to Yahweh. There's no indication here of anything that Israel did spiritually or theologically to move God's hand to salvation. But God acted by himself to save Israel by his grace alone. And so we see again another important theme of the Bible, which is that salvation not only is of the Lord, but salvation is by grace alone. God acted graciously toward Israel because he is a gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate God. In Exodus 34, as God was on the mountain after the incident with the golden calf, he reminds them who he, who he is. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so what does a gracious God do? He graciously saves his people. In fact, the very nature of salvation is that it must be by grace. It must be the Lord's doing. Because not only are we unable to save ourselves, 
we have no other resource, no other recourse to use to try to save ourselves. He alone not only is able to save, but he alone must save. In fact, we contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin. Salvation is God's work alone that he supplies by grace. God's salvation for Israel by his agent Othniel foreshadows the supreme display of his salvation that he provided for us in Jesus Christ. Remember, salvation is of the Lord. Only God can save. So to whom do we run when in distress caused by our own sin? We run to the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So God has provided this great salvation for us in the person of Jesus Christ, the greater Othniel. Again, in many ways, Othniel resembles Christ in this passage. He is the ideal judge. He is the exemplary judge. He's the model judge. There's nothing negative said about him. In fact, as we look at the rest of the judges, we'll see not just some flaws, lots of flaws. It would be very hard for us to understand how some of these people could later be said in the book of Hebrews as paragons of faith, models of faith. Yet Othniel is the, is the, is the exemplary judge. He's the model judge. He becomes the standard, setting forth what all the other judges should be. He is the one by whom all the other judges would be judged. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. There is no one else like him. We sang that song this morning. There is no one else like him. Before Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so what we see here in Othniel is a foreshadowing of the greatness and the glory and the perfection of Jesus Christ. Othniel also comes from the tribe of Judah. We mentioned that, which, of course, Jesus himself does as well. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes from that tribe that that Jacob prophesied the scepter would never depart. And so he here is again foreshadowing of the king that that would come. The, the, the one true king who would come to bring salvation for his people. We see that Othniel is a savior for his people, just as Jesus is the savior of his people, but in an even greater, more supreme way. We see here in verse 11 that Othniel judged Israel for 40 years. That's the length of a Hebrew generation for a lifetime, if you will, for most Hebrews, most Israelites. When the word judged in this context in verse 10 indicates not judging, and I think Tim used this illustration, not a judge in a black robe behind a desk who's adjudicating cases. The word judge here is more to govern or to rule. We might say it's sort of a proto-king, if you will. Othniel is functioning here as a proto-king. We know that Jesus Christ is the king of kings whose rule doesn't last for 40 years or for a lifetime, but it lasts forever. In fact, the the significant difference here between Othniel and Jesus is that Othniel died. And when he died, we'll see next week, salvation temporarily ended for the people of Israel. But when Jesus died, his death initiated 
His death secured. His death applied salvation for all of God's elect. Othniel died never to judge Israel again. But Jesus was raised from the dead never to relinquish his rule. As ideal a judge as Othniel was, he was not the one to bring salvation in its fullest sense. He instead foreshadowed that Savior, that Deliverer who would, Jesus Christ. Othniel reminds us that God is gracious, that he will save his people. Othniel reminds us that God will do his work of salvation through his appointed agent, empowered by his Spirit, who will decisively defeat the enemies of his people, who will save them completely, who will give them eternal rest and satisfaction in him alone. You see, friends, we don't need Othniel. We need Jesus. Jesus is the Savior that we really need. He's the one whom God sent to die on the cross for our sins. He's the one whom God sent to bear the punishment for our sins, the the judgment that our sins deserved. He is the one who God sent to forgive us of our sins, who he sent to reconcile us to himself, who he sent to give us eternal life and rest. God used Othniel in his day to show Israel the Savior and the salvation that they really needed. He was the foreshadowing of the one they were to look for. Jesus is the one who came and fulfilled all that God promised and all that Othniel foreshadowed. And so we look to him for our salvation. So the paradigm of salvation. We are sinners. God judges sinners. We must look to God for salvation. And God graciously saves through Jesus Christ. Let us look to Jesus and find rest. And let us give thanks to God for such a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word, all of it. We're thankful, Lord, that even those things that are hard to understand, that those things that seem distant and obscure, teach us one message, that salvation is of the Lord, and that you have accomplished that salvation supremely in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for him. We are thankful for his sacrifice. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you. We're thankful for the hope of eternal life. Lord, our prayer is that we would no longer be like Israel, that we would walk in your ways, that we would live in the way of righteousness, that we would serve you and you alone. We would not forget you and serve other things, but that our allegiance and our devotion and our obedience would be to you now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.